welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. Hey, we're in a series called Kingdom Culture, and uh, we're looking at the way Jesus establishes his kingdom on earth, and that when he brings his kingdom on earth, he brings a culture with it, and a culture is a set of beliefs, values, practices, relational boundaries that we, in fact, can embody and replicate here on earth. And so we recognize that he invites us as followers of Jesus to bring, um, to extend and partner with God in bringing God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. So that, that means wherever we go, as we go, we are able to bring that culture of heaven with us, whether it be our workplace, in our family life, in our home life, in our personal life, in our roommate situation. There is a way of interacting and living with God today, here and now, that extends the kingdom on earth. How are we doing? Okay, so last week we talked about when Jesus brings his kingdom He brings a kingdom or a culture of belonging and that his community is a powerful uh, reorientation of all other groups and that we could affiliate to or bring loyalty to. So I wanna bring you a quick recap if you missed last week. Last week's sermon in four points. Point number one, Jesus models his new community after the most important group in the first century context, the natural family. Point number two, last week, Jesus challenged the first century culture to place primary relational loyalty from the natural family to the new kingdom community. Point number three, following Jesus requires countercultural priorities and values. And point number four, the lens through which we are to read the teachings of Jesus in in the Gospels must be one that sees loyalty to God found in the daily expression of unswerving loyalty to God's kingdom community. So if you missed last week, I highly recommend it. For me, it was a a personal revelation of realizing what one scripture meant in today's context. And whenever I get that, I'm very excited about that. So if you missed last week, I was very excited about last week. I'm also very excited about this week. Um, But the implications of last week are radical if you allow the teaching to settle into your heart and your priorities. For example, this morning, my wife and I were talking about last week's sermon um, before we, we showed up here today. And we're talking about the priorities of Jesus in our life and how do we reorganize our life and schedule around the priorities of Jesus and how do we challenge cultural priorities. And for example, um, some of you might have kids, um, but what happens when your kids get old enough, they're thrust, thrusted into this world of competitive sports. And so at four years old, last year, we chose to let our son Ezra play in soccer with four-year-olds four-year-olds. And the day I, I walk up, I've never played soccer in my life. I don't know anything about soccer or football or whatever you want to call it. Billions of people watch soccer around the world. I've never, I don't have a clue. And that was what I was carrying into the situation. So my son, Ezra, has no clue other than what a soccer ball is and that you kick it and you don't use your hands. And we show up to practice. Sure enough, the first thing the coach asks is how many years has he been playing? Uh, this, I said, lucky, lucky for you, this is his first time ever playing soccer. He's like, we need to get him into club practice. There's a tutor on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. And I'm like, are you kidding me? And no joke, at four years old, we realized a cultural value. 
of competitive sports. And what happened is they changed the practice to Wednesdays. We told them we have house church on Wednesdays and the rhythms of our life would enable him to go twice a month but not every week and that we travel um, and teach different places so we're gonna miss because we're going to other churches on Saturday. And so Ezra missed half of his practices because we had house church as the primary value that we, we organized our calendar life around. And that's what we're doing now. So we're putting him in soccer again, but we all, what we decided is we're gonna tell friends at the garden that are in the same age as Ezra that if they wanna join the soccer, we should join on the same team so we can build community around it. And we're gonna do it on a night of the week where I even said, I'll coach the team. I will learn everything from Google and YouTube <laughs> in order to make it work for our family schedule so we don't miss church events. But that's what we carry. And that's what our family has decided to reorganize our priorities around the kingdom priorities. And that's, and as he gets older, it's only gonna get worse or harder, you could say, or more complex, or I don't, worse is maybe not the most appropriate term there. But the point is, when you follow Jesus, he's what you reorganize every el- everything else around. Does that make sense? So in a culture that sees your family or sports or your money or your work as the priority, we have to put that in check with Jesus. So today we're picking up part two of culture of belonging. And today uh, I want to present to you a case for biblical community. Um, community is everything for our, our, what it means to follow Jesus. I'm going to make that case today. Um, what I have for you in the next 35 minutes are eight points on community and six practical things you can do. And I promise we'll get, we'll get done in 35 minutes because it's just really quick points. I feel like this is the best way to teach this sermon today. Um, but just so you know, as a disclaimer before I pray, everyone should be in a house church at the garden. Everyone should be in a house church at the garden. And I don't mean to put a should on you or should you, but I believe that the primary environment for life in the kingdom, for experiencing life in the kingdom is a house church. And the primary environment for following Jesus as a disciple or an apprentice is a house church. So whatever stage of life you're in, whatever serious business you carry or lead, whatever, whatever it looks like for your family to travel or whatever, whatever it is, I believe house church should be the priority that you reorganize your life around covenantal community on mission together. And this whole sermon and last week's sermon basically is the mindset that has transitioned our entire church to be a a church that organizes around house churches. Does that make sense? So let's pray and pray for the sermon today and what God wants to do for us. So Lord, would you bless us today with your presence? Thank you that worship is why we're here. We're here to worship you and that um, we come to give our very best to you. And so often we come to gatherings like this and we wanna get something. But I pray our mindset would shift. I thank you that you love us, Father, and that you're in a good mood. Just let that settle in. God is good and in a good mood. He loves us. He's for us. He's with us. He delights in us. He loves us as we are and not as we should be. And even as we are already feeling a sense of conviction, he just wants to bring us a yoke, a way of life that's easy, and light, and one that will give our soul, our mind, emotions, our body, our spirits, our relational capacity, rest. So Lord, I pray that as we learn about your community, the way you design community to flourish and humanity to flourish, that you would bring conviction to change, 
bring power to change, bring uh, courage to be vulnerable. But most of all, Lord, I pray that we would be a church that lives with truth and that we would reorder our lives around truth, not just emotions, not just convenience or comfort. And so we bless you in Jesus' name, amen. Point number one, biblical community is more than just Christian friends. Biblical community is more than just Christian friends, hanging out, getting coffee, or getting wine and having dinner together. Biblical community is more than that. Mark chapter three from last week, verse 31, Jesus says this. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, hey, your mother and your brother are outside. Brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in the circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister and mother. Jesus radically redefines community and family around the mission of God. Community, biblical community is forged and formed on mission, period. We are God's family and what that means is we have a family business to run. We get to renew the cosmos. We get to walk as co-heirs with Christ, as trusted rulers, given access to the heavenly realms here and now to bring reordering, restoration, reconciliation of all things back to the way God intended it to to be, to bring on earth as it is in heaven. Also, to be God's witnesses to the ends of the earth. It doesn't happen just because we're a bunch of friends hanging out and we happen to believe Jesus is Lord. And I know we like to do that. We like to think that, oh, we can do our own house church thing because we're gonna read this book together and form a community that's exclusive, that doesn't accept outsiders, and that everyone looks like us, votes like us, dresses like us, and is in the same life stage as us, so we found a convenient community that works for us. But church and biblical community is not about us, it's about the world. All right, so if a community is exclusive, it's not a biblical church community. It has to exist for the outsiders, for the people that don't know Jesus. Yes, you can have exclusive, intimate accountability groups. That's not what I'm saying. But a church is always inclusive. We okay with that? Even if you're not, it's okay. It's what the Bible says. And I'm just kidding. (laughs) Sorry about that. Point number two, community. Let's just keep going. Community is the context for discipleship. Community is the context for discipleship. In the New Testament, there are two dominant metaphors for the people of God, disciples of Jesus and family. So when it comes to following Jesus, you're a disciple of Jesus or family, and community is not optional for discipleship. There was a study done nationwide that surveyed um, what was called the state of discipleship, and 38% of American Christians preferred method of discipleship is on my own. Me, myself, and Jesus is the church I belong to. 40% of American Christians said that. There are 59 one another's in the New Testament. Love one another, share with one another, share each other's burdens, rejoice with one another. 59, you can't possibly obey the biblical commands of the New Testament without other people. The context for discipleship is community. 
Community is the context for discipleship. So that's what we have to recognize. There's no do-it-yourself spirituality. I love what Billy Graham brought to the United States in Western culture, this idea of personal loving relationship with God. That didn't really exist until, that concept didn't exist until Billy Graham and that whole movement of evangelism. But what it's done is it's displaced the role of church. And because we're carrying, we're swimming in the, the, this culture of narcissism, that's a negative way of saying it, of individualism. <laughs> but everything we do in our life is filtered around ourself, right? And the convenience that we have or need. And so community is built on that and our relationship to Jesus has been built on that. But to follow Jesus requires authentic, meaningful community. Point number three, we are designed for community. Scientists say we are neurobiologically hardwired for community. Two leading psychologists wrote a book called The Relational Soul, and they talk about the role relationships play in our healing as people. And they say this, and I felt this this week. And as I read it, I just want to afterwards, will you just raise your hand if you felt this? At the core of our being is this truth. We are designed for and defined by our relationships. We were born with a relentless longing to participate in the lives of others. Fundamentally, we are relational souls. We cannot not be relational. We cannot exist well without connection and communion with another. I felt it this week. Needed that communion with brothers this week. Anyone else resonate like that? Like, can I just, I'm gonna throw this out for ministry time after real quick. My sense this week was that some of you took this vulnerable leap to come forward last week or felt like, I wanna be courageous and say that I need community, I'm feeling lonely. 40% of the Western world feels lonely. And you did, and this week you were met with opposition or it was contested that you felt more loneliness and despair about loneliness this week. That's what I felt this week. As a man who leads community for a living, I felt lonely, loneliness and isolation and felt alone. And if you felt that, I feel like there was some opposition spiritually that we'll talk about afterwards. We'll pray for that. Just wanna put that in your head now. Um, but the point of this is that in this book, Relational Soul, they make a point that you can have a great job and loads of money. You can have your dream house, but if your closest relationships are fractured, then whether you have a job, whether you have lots of money, whether you live in your desirable house, life is still miserable. How many of us can relate to this? That we know, point number four, life is better in community. It's like, I've traveled all over the place, and I'll tell you, when I travel with my family, it's 10 times better. Like, I'll experience something without Alex and be like, yeah, okay. Look, I'm looking at Giant's Causeway. Cool, this great wonder, amazing. But I wish my wife was here for this. Because life is better in community. It's better when you have people that are journeying with you on this long journey of life in the highs and in the lows. And what I tell people all the time is share the victories and the struggles because then we'll celebrate the victories when you get there and we'll support you in the struggles. Show people the work. Show people the process. Show your work. Teachers love to make you show your work. <laughs> right? <laughs> it's true. But that's what community's like. That's a point number nine. Show your work. Community, show it. Now, I don't know how that works out. Ecclesiastes 4, 
verse 9 says this. Now, Ecclesiastes is written by Solomon. It's a, these are like Proverbs. These are like statements of wisdom. Wisdom, there's all sorts of themes that Proverbs and Ecclesiastes do. They show you the way of the wise or the way of the fool. Um, they'll show you the blessed life or the way of righteousness versus the way of destruction or the way of the wicked. And so there's themes. And what wisdom is in the Old Testament, um, wisdom is about mastering the art of living. So there are statements that Proverbs and Ecclesiastes make that are just simple truth that whether you believe in Jesus or not are truth. So I'm gonna give you one if you're not a Christian, you'll be like, yeah, I totally agree. Watch this, biblical truth. Ecclesiastes 4 verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. How many of you would agree with this statement of truth? Because, and if you don't agree, let me give you one option. Have you ever tried to move your house by yourself? Two are better than one. My wife tries to rearrange the house by herself, which ends up being half of a rug moved on top with a, a couch on top of it. And then she finally calls me in and she does this all the time. She gets like a plant and then we have to rearrange our entire house around the tiny little plant. Does anyone else have somebody in their life that makes it living exhaustion? Um, whenever they have a creative idea. It's never that simple. But two, two people are better than one. There's a return of, of investment. But the truth is this, it goes on. If either of them falls down, one can help them up. And think about that. When you have community in your life and you go through something, there's somebody there to help you up. And it goes on to say, but pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. It's heartbreaking. Uh, who's there when your marriage is in crisis? Who's there when you get sick? Postmates? Yeah, Postmates. Thank God for Postmates. But do you have friends that are bringing food over? Do you have friends that will pray for you? Do you have friends that will cover you with faith when you lack it? Two are better than one. Life is better in community. I have seen in the last 10 years of leading this church, that two is better than one. That what I've seen over and over again is when people step outside of biblical covenantal community for whatever reason, whether it's a stage of life, they go from being single to being married or being married to having kids, or whether it goes from uh, not having a job to having a job, or they go from being single to dating. I watch men and women choose to opt out of covenantal relationship for whatever season or stage of life. And as crises, whether it be job opportunity, whether it be marital conflict, whether it be just becoming new parents is just really, really hard, just so you know if you're not a parent yet. Going from not being a parent to being a parent is by far the hardest life transition I've ever had to go through. Because you go from pretty much autonomy, being, doing whatever you want. Like you could, when you're not a parent, you could just leave the house. You could just stroll in the mall. Like who goes to the mall? You could just stroll in the mall, not thinking this kid needs a snack and this cat, kid has to change his diaper and this kid won't get off of me asking a million questions about why that exists. That's a sign. It's an advertisement. What's an advertisement? It's trying to sell you stuff. What's trying to sell you? Never mind, you'll learn soon enough. I love my kids. <laughs> I love my kids. But there's transitions that you step into and you shouldn't transition out of community when you're transitioning into something new. When people, when they step out of community is when things 
fail. I have seen lots of marriages fail, unfortunately. Divorces happen in our community, and it's heartbreaking. I have discovered and experienced one thing in common with all of them. They're all different reasons, but everything has one in common. Every single marriage, they stepped out of a covenantal community. It wasn't just going to church. They stopped doing that. They stopped going to house church. They stopped going to community group. They stopped texting and showing up with other community members so that they could experience the journey they were on together. Which brings me to point number four, or five, community is preventative. Authentic, meaningful community is preventative. We don't even realize this. When you have it, you don't realize how much you're preventing. Just like if you're a good driver, you don't realize how many car accidents you didn't get into because you're a good, responsive driver, right? When you're in community, you don't even realize what you're preventing, what preventing with other people because you're just doing life together. But when you are in community, real, authentic, meaningful, biblical, covenantal community, whatever you want to describe it, you give permission to people to speak into your life. And this is what we lack. I go to friends regularly. My wife does it every day. She has permission to call me out. So this week, hanging out in different situations with a group of people, we get home, hey, you were really rude to that person. No, there's no stopping her telling me you were judgmental about what she was talking about and you were rude with your response. I know you were being rude. First, it's all the defense. Well, I was tired. You weren't watching the kids. This woman you gave me, that whole Genesis chapter three. <laughs> How many of you know what I'm to brothers? You know, first line of defense. Well, it's your fault. <clears throat> but I had to own it. She called me out and I texted the person. You know, I think I was a little quick the way I responded to you. Would you forgive me? That's how it works. It's preventing stuff. That's, that's the beauty of marriage when you allow your spouse to call out your junk. It's a, it's a gift of sanctification. That's why I think single people need authentic, meaningful accountability groups so they can be called out. But it's not just marriages. I have a group of guys that call it out. I will regularly ask the guys that have, I've given permission to speak into my life. I'll ask them, what do you see in my marriage that I don't see? What do you see in my, my, my lifestyle, in my purchasing, in my business, the, way, the, the ways that I talk, the ways that I'm preaching, the stories? I want you to be able to call out any untruth any exaggeration, any mark, and they will because I'm looking this way. When you're living in community, you have somebody looking this way, you have somebody looking this way. They got your back and they're preventing fallout. So one friend was courageous enough to call out something about my parenting. Based on my core wound with my dad, he called out something that he sees me doing regularly with Ezra and it was shocking and hard and vulnerable but it radically changed the way I parent my son the blessing of walking with people who have permission. Who has permission in your life to call you to who you are becoming, to hold you to God's standard? That's what we do as church. We hold you to the standard God sees you already at, right? So we think, let me just make sure this disclaimer happens. You are loved by God as you are and not as you should be. There will never be more love that you have from the Father than what you already possess. He will just lavish his extravagant love. At the same time, not to to earn more love, but because you have it, we now live out of who we are becoming with God. And so we are called to be transformed into Christ-likeness. This word holy, 
we are to become holy as the people of God. We are to become righteous and we are to live in this world and respond to circumstances the way Jesus would if he were in our situation. This is called spiritual formation. Or this is called sanctification. You guys okay with that? We are called as a community to hold each other to God's standard. Not to judge each other for missing it, but to call it out. Not just with sin issues. Yes, we should deal with those things. Yes, absolutely. And that's what we do in house churches. That's what we do in community. But to who we are becoming, what God has put inside of us. I was with a friend on Wednesday and a group of guys, and this friend is, is exhausted and burnt out. And he's, he's, he, he and his wife are working constantly, and they were talking about their struggles. And what we realized as we're meeting is that the issues that are right facing him about his business, about, his, about the busyness and the schedule life, is that he is not able to be the person God's called him to be because of the busyness. And our job as brothers is to come alongside him and say, you need to slow down because God's called you to intercede. You need to, you need to pass off some of this busyness of work and hire somebody because God's called you to lead other men into their stories. There's a calling on your life. I'm gonna hold you accountable to the calling God has in your life, to the greatness God's called you to be. How's that doing? How, how are we doing with that? We need accountability groups for the unimaginable. Not the unimaginable sins, but the, the impossibilities that God's called us into. The greatness he's called. You're gonna be fishers of men. You're gonna transform nations. You're gonna disciple nations. You're an evangelist. We need to call that out of each other, but most of us aren't living with that mindset. We're trying to figure out where do we live? Who are we gonna marry? What are we gonna eat after church? Should I Postmates pokey or just get it and save the $10 with tip? These are things, right? Real struggles. <laughs> Point number six, community is the context for transformation. Community is the context for transformation. So spiritual formation occurs primarily in the context of community, becoming more like Jesus. Long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. People who stay, grow. People who leave, do not grow. It is a simple but profound biblical reality that we both grow and thrive together or we do not grow much at all. Do you see this is from the book Slow Church? And I love that language, it's the crucible. Yes, community is hard at times, but it is, it's in the crucible of community that we are formed and shaped to become like Jesus. So when you're thinking, oh, thinking about community, remember who you have around you. Remember who are the people that are influencing the decisions you make in life. Is it your coworkers? Is it your non-Christian friends? Is it your roommates? Is it the Kardashians or Kanye? Seriously, who is shaping the decisions you make about where you live, where you spend money, who you spend time with, what your goals are, your priorities, priorities are in life? If you surround yourself with idiots, you will become just like them. Harsh? No, it's not harsh. Proverbs says it this way, 1320. Walk with the wise and become wise, for a companion of fools suffers harm. I love what Eugene Peterson says in the message, same verse. Become wise by walking with the wise. Surround yourself with wisdom, wisdom from people. Hang out with fools and watch your life fall to pieces. 
So who are the people you're allowing to influence your decisions, influencing your values, influencing your your habits, influencing your life. Now, I was just talking to somebody who came back to this, to this service after the first service, and he's like, bro, I feel called as an evangelist to reach the people in the world that don't know Jesus, and I spend a lot of time with them. I'm like, yes, you are an evangelist. You need to do that. Your schedule should be filled with lots of people who don't know Jesus, and at the same time, you need to ask a group of brothers who will hold you accountable, who will walk with you, who know your heart, who know your limits, that will fill you up, that become a safe place of intimacy so that you are built up and influenced by them, not by the people you're ministering to. It's almost like a clock. You need rhythms of out and in, out and in, giving it away and receiving it. And you need to define that and define your circle of intimacy, who's inside filling you up. And then you go and you give it. Does that make sense? But you have to decide who's gonna influence you. We are formation, we're, 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 we are influenced animals. We are formational machines. The world is an, a f- formational machine that's wanting to influence us to become like it. We're being, every t- day we wake up, every time we drive to work, every time we listen to music, we hear advertisement, we go on Instagram, we go on social media, we try to buy something on Amazon, we, whatever. We are being influenced by the world and its values. So we have to make a decision to be influenced by the right kind of influencers. Proverbs 14 says this, stay away from a fool, for you will not find knowledge on their lips. Who do you go for with advice on how to parent or how to, how to make a decision about what college you're going to accept if you got accepted into college? Or what job you're going to take? Is it people who have wisdom from the Holy Spirit? Or is it conventional worldly wisdom? Do what the world says. Or are you being influenced by the power of God for everyday decisions? This is a huge factor for me because I think if you want to become a person of influence in the world that is a light to the world, you walk with wisdom. And wisdom has counsel around them that speaks into those decisions and those, uh, those values that you possess and carry. Are we okay with this? I thought so. Point number seven or let me say 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Do not be misled. Bad, char- bad company corrupts good character. Same, that's the same point. Vo- point number seven, community is an investment. If you wait for it, it won't be there when you need it, like retirement. If you don't invest now, it won't be there for when you need it. If you start now, it will be there when you need it. And the tragedy is we... We can, as a church, express, express compassion and mercy to people. Um, but so many people come to the church that are hurting or are needing crisis, and they, they're not living in community with other people like a house church or, or a covenant community. What they expect is an institution to give a handout rather than walking with people who will carry you in seasons of pain and crisis. Community is an investment that you make over a long period of time. And it takes energy and commitment to make it happen. And so often people show up and they, they, they expect to have what they had from previous communities without the investment. Does that make sense? So I encourage you to invest now. I know people who were the kinds of people in our community that were the ones always giving. They're always showing up for people. And then a few years ago, a season of crisis came that has been met with lots of other crises. Like so many things have happened in this couple's life that it's like a lifetime of pain experience in a few years, major grief. 
and they were giving constantly to everyone else. And as a result, it was really hard for them. They became the recipients of amazing community that showed up to the hospital, that showed up, uh, that took care of things for them when they couldn't take care of them, that were there holding them up when they needed a season uh, of support because they were the ones always supporting. That's a classic example of someone who walked in investing and received a return on their investment. But let me go to the next point, which is probably the most important for today. Point number eight, community is never ideal and always a byproduct of time and commitment. No matter what community, what house church, what church you go to, it will never meet your expectations. I promise. The grass is always greener. Whatever community you find yourself in, you'll always look outside for that experience you're longing for. And I love what Jean Vanier said, um, the founder of L'Arche, a famous Jesus community that was based in Switzerland that's come from now all over the world. And his communities were founded on this idea of living in community with mentally disabled individuals, severely mentally disabled individuals um, in a housing community that shared life together. And he's 90-something, he's in hospice right now, I think, unless he passed, but he's this amazing influence. He was the spiritual director and mentor for Henry Nouwen, and he says this, almost everyone finds their early days in community ideal. It all seems perfect. They feel they are surrounded by saints, heroes, or at the least, most exceptional people who are, the, are everything they want to be themselves. And then comes the letdown. The greater their idealization of community at the start, the greater the disenchantment. If people manage to get through the second period, they've come to the third phase, that of realize and of true commitment. They no longer see other members of the community as saints or devils, but as people, each with a mixture of good and bad, darkness and light, each growing and each with their own hope. The community is neither heaven nor hell, but planted firmly on earth, and they are ready to walk in it and with it. They accept the community and the other members as they are, they are confident that together they can grow towards something more beautiful. His approach to community is life-changing for me, but these three areas of community, stages of community are, are so apparent in our church. The idealization phase, the disenchantment phase, and the commitment phase. Tragically, most people never get past stage two. We ache for belonging. We long for meaningful community, and yet we also keep our options open. We approach relationships with a consumer mindset. What's in it for me? And we live in a world with options, so we hold out on commitment for something better to come along, something cooler, easier, or more convenient, so we just don't commit, we say maybe. And the reality is you can't have community without commitment, time, or investment. If you want community in-depth, safe, open, honest, long-term relationships, then you have to commit to a group of people and walk with them for a lifetime even when it's hard. And what I've noticed for 10 years of leading a church and 17 years of being a part of small groups, my wife and I, since we've been married, have led small groups, life groups, garden groups, community groups, missional communities, house churches, staff, staff elders, groups, board groups. We have led possibly everything you possibly lead in groups. And the same is true for all of them. What I see is that people that carry in expectations of what they want from community tend to be the loudest and the least committed. 
What happens is you have people come to church or come to your house church or come to something and they bring this energy of expectation an idealization of what they want from, their com- from this community and how they had it over here and now they want it here and they want you to fulfill that role. And when they do that to you, they should all over you and they bring it. And when you fail to meet their expectations, when you don't become the person that's constantly texting back, calling back, when you don't have any boundaries, they are hurt and the moment you don't meet it, they're disenchanted with this community. It's not like the biblical community and they leave it looking for the grass that's greener on the other side. And I don't waste any time with those people anymore because I know what my job is as the lead pastor of the Garden Church who's under the authority of Jesus to lead this community with elders. I've discovered my one task for community. You wanna know what it means for me to lead you as a church that my sole job to train you as community, what your task is as community. You wanna know what it is? Do you wanna know? My job, I didn't hear anything. I'm glad you're listening. My job is to train you and to teach you how to die to yourself. Didn't see that coming. How's that for seeker friendly? Welcome to the garden. We're gonna teach you how to die well. Sign up over here, death by service, death by community, death by giving everything you possibly can, death by looking at people the way Jesus does who had the mind of Christ even though considered himself equal with God, did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped but gave himself, emptied himself. Oh, that's just Philippians 2 in case you're taking notes that we should look not to our own interests but to the interest of others. My job as a pastor is not to meet your need. Your job as a congregant, as a member, as a leader of community is to train people how to die to themselves, how to know when you have all authority and power and talent and gifting from God to take off the outer garments. We're gonna do that metaphorically here and put on a servant's towel and wash your disciples' feet. You take the lowest position. I heard a story of a guy in our church who came in with talents of worship. He's got gifts in leading worship. Came to our team, hey, uh, here's the thing, I wanna help in worship, but I wanna serve. Where do you need it? And we, we said, we need you to serve in kids. We need worship to be there, not here. He's like, absolutely, I'll even walk, I'll clean toilets if that's what it takes. I just wanna serve. That's what we need. That guy will be leading lots of people one day because he takes the form of Jesus, the lowest servant. He doesn't need a stage to use his talent. Some people are looking for stage. Some people are looking for, for platform. What the garden church will look for is a towel and a mop and say, where can I serve? If you do that, you will find friends for a lifetime. You will carry with you an investment that lasts for eternity, a community of brothers and sisters who have your back, who will hold you up and recognize Jesus within you as you show them the Jesus way. How are we doing? I want to give you six points now. It'll take two minutes. I got 45 seconds. Here we go, real fast. I want to give you, I want you to write these down. These are things that I've learned in my life on how to build biblical community. And if there's one thing you write down, it's point number one. Ready for this? I want you to imagine your life when you, when you schedule your life, I want you to put relationships on the schedule and I want you to write down include, invite, invest. This has been a framework for Alex and I and how we have built the Garden Church where it starts, it's all about relationship. The meaning of life is relationship. Ministry does not exist outside of relationship. 
These are philosophies of ministry that have formed my life through Bill, Pastor Bill, Don, who goes to our church. And what I see is that in order to do that, you need to be intentional. So include people. If you're going to the beach, include people on that journey. If you're going to the park with your kids, include other families on the park with, or people that would want to hang out with you because they, they like you, just include them. If you're having a, a, a Taco Tuesday or Cinco de Mayo party, it happens to be Cinco de Mayo. Include people who might not have be on the inside and bring them into the inside. This is all you have to do, just include them. It's not a lot of buy-in there. It's not very costly. You're doing it anyways. Include them. Then be intentional. If God puts people in your life, I'm always asking every December and January, Lord, who do you want me to invite and invest in? this year. And so I'll say, I'll invite them. If I'm going on a trip, I'll invite them to come. If I, if I am, if I, we'll go on significant, like Alex and I will go on a date night. God puts couples in our life to walk with. We'll take this couple, invite them to date night with us, have meaningful conversations. Like example, what's the high, hardest thing about your marriage right now? This is what we did this week. Because God's like, invite people into your life. And then invest. Invest in people. Choose to go out of your way to invest, to show up for them and be a part of their life. Invite, include, invest. These three things have changed our entire life. We schedule around these things. We prioritize around these things when it comes to relationship. Number two, practically, eat meals together. You're welcome. Eat lots of meals. If you don't have a table in your house, buy a table and make it the center of your life. That's what Jesus did. That was the evangelistic center for him, the table. This is the, the center for discipleship, the center for meaningful conversations. Don't sh- my kids, my five-year-old, when we have people over, you know, I've trained him to ask, how's your day? What are you learning right now? These are things my five-year-old will ask. We ask, what are ways that you love today? What are ways that you, what are the things that you learned? What did you laugh at? These are questions that we intentionally build our family life around the table. It's so important. I realize that so many families don't even have a regular meal around the table. We do at least twice a day. And if I miss it, or if I'm out of town, I'll I'll FaceTime in, because that's when we talk about Jesus. That's when we talk about our days. That's an important priority, the meal together. Some of you are gifts, you have gifts of hospitality. Permission to use it. (laughs) Please train others at hospitality. You're good at cooking. I'm good at postmating when you need food. I don't know how to cook. Alex, you know what? I had to make pizza, like homemade gluten-free pizza for my son last night because she was gone. And she's like, don't worry, you just make pizza. It's super easy. And I'm like, okay, cool. She's about to leave. Hey, babe, I know you said it's super easy. And I'm not asking this because I'm an idiot, but I really want to, how do I make homemade pizza? Like, I don't, I am used to DiGiorno. That is easy. You stick it in the oven. I don't do it, like, she's like, pull out the frozen gluten-free pie, put tomato sauce and cheese on it, stick it in the oven for a certain amount of time, and that's it. I was like, I literally didn't know that. Some of you know how to make from scratch all sorts of things. You should be using that as your God-given gift to build community. Share your hearts. If you want to build community, share your hearts. Um, I, don't, I, I don't have time. To, uh, this is a great quote by Brene Brown, but we need to be vulnerable. When you're with each other, go deep. It's so easy to allow conversations to say surface. Always, that's where we want, we live in this comfort zone of like, what's, how's work? Cool. Uh, did you watch the Game of Thrones last night? No, I didn't watch it last night. Did you see Avengers? No. So you stay up here, right? I mean, you can go deep with Game of Thrones or Avengers, but you stay up here. <laughs> Bring it to the heart level. Start by being, hey, I want to tell you some of the struggles that I've had this week. This, this morning, I te- or 
Last night, I texted a group of guys that I walk with. I said, hey, I was struggling with this. I was feeling really lonely these days. And I feel like the enemy's coming at me here. I just wanted you to know, rather than being lonely and isolated in that, I brought it to the community that walks with me. Three, uh, number four, share your time, resources, and money with each other. Number five is serve others together. Don't just make it about you having cool happy hour. Go out and serve other people. That will forge a community like no other. If people show up to serve others, that's, I mean, think about if you've ever gone on a mission trip, what happens in like a week in Mexico is like a, four years of house church. It's, 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 it's true, because when you're doing something on mission together, all of a sudden it brings you together like a team. That's, you know, like any good movie that has a football team that goes through trials and comes together and the football guy breaks his leg and then it's the up guy that comes, the up, you know, the v, uh, JV guy comes and has the v, winning touchdown and all of a sudden they have to trust his leadership so they go through this moment and then they're all together. That's what I'm talking about. I didn't do that very well. That was spontaneous but you get what I'm saying. Number six, stay together, embrace the pain, and grow up together. Stay together, embrace the pain, and grow up together. Authenticity is a collection of choices that we have to make every day. It's about the choice to show up and be real, the choice to be honest, and the choice to let our true selves be seen. So when you're going through seasons of crisis, when you're going through hard times, let people into that process to show up for you. I know it's hard to be vulnerable. I know it's hard to receive from other people, but when you're not allowing others to give, you're, dis, you're disempowering their gifts from God. In other words, you're disempowering God's generosity in your life. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit garden.church.